Welcome to the second installment of the Think and Drink lecture series. We are really excited to be having it here at Roberta's again. Thank you for having us, everyone that runs around here and makes this place happen, so thank you. Um, if you don't know, Think and Drink is a lecture series that will be traveling around to different bars and restaurants in Brooklyn and um, really showcasing the city's great minds. So we're hoping to keep this going, and um, you guys doing that is really, really helping, so thank you. Um, there's a lot of really, really awesome people that are here tonight and um, that make this possible. Uh, I am only one mumbling little man, and there are some, some really cool people. Jeff Hunt, who um, designed our logo. Thank you, Jeff. Um, Eros um, Diversi. I don't even know if he's here, but when he gets here, I'm, I will point him out to everyone. He did our amazing, he illustrated our amazing poster this time around. It's gorgeous, so please check out his work. Um, Zoe Van Dyke did our previous uh, Think and Drake poster. Please check out her work as well. They are very, very talented people. Um, Bonnie Pipkin and, and Julie Shepard, who helped me set all this up and, and do a lot of, lot of work on behind the scenes. So there's some, it's a really a, a group effort, so I really appreciate it. Um, we're honored and humbled and excited tonight to be... Um, for Steven to be here. Um, I emailed him and expected him never to email me back. And uh, I'm, really, I'm really psyched to have him here. This is a, a restaurant that is based on innovation and ideas and has really been the, at the forefront of progressing what restaurants and bars can do. So for Steven to be here talking is truly special. Um, if you don't know, he is an acclaimed best-selling author. He's written um, some amazing, amazing writings, and he uh, has a new Emmy Award-winning um, program that was on PBS, and you can stream it on Netflix called How We Got to Now. Um, he's a, an innovation expert, I guess. I've been calling, I've been calling you that, but um, I'm really happy to have him here, and I'm, I welcome Stephen, Stephen now, so thank you. All right. I don't, should I do this stand-up style, or should I do it with the mic? Uh, can you hear me if I if it's like that? Okay, good. Um, so yeah, I'm going to do it stand-up style. Um, so I, I, I'm delighted to be here on, on a couple of different levels. So when Greg uh, emailed me and told me about this series, I was like, "Oh my gosh, what a coincidence! Thinking and drinking are two of my favorite activities." Particularly simultaneously, um, and so I was sold right at the at the subject header, um, and then it turned out he explained it more, and it's actually me talking and you drinking, which is not quite as fun as I imagined. So I'm gonna I'm gonna I've got some wine up here. I'm gonna start drinking it when we get to a conversation part of the of the evening. Um, but I'm I'm also really excited because. Um, the the paperback for how we got to now just came out, and we didn't really have much planned because paperbacks sometimes don't get the love that they need, and we're we're back to being pretty much semi full time residents of the great borough of Brooklyn, and so it seemed perfect to celebrate the paperback launch by uh, doing a talk here at this icon of Brooklyn creativity. So it's really special. Thank you all for coming out. Um, what I wanted to do, actually, I thought it would be kind of fun, given the location, is to tell you some of the stories from How We Got to Now, and in fact, one story that's not in How We Got to Now that I haven't really talked about very much, um, that are all uh, New York-themed in some way. Uh, in fact, some of them Brooklyn-themed. And really tell you three or four stories that kind of illustrate the, the principles and what we were trying to do with How We Got to Now, and then we can open it up to any conversation about anything you want, or we can just drink and think silently to ourselves. Um, how we got to now, you know, it was, it was the first book of mine that was also a show, and we kind of developed it at the same time. Um, so I was shooting the show, these long, like, 10-hour shoots, and then I would go back to the hotel and work on the book at night, which was really grueling. And so it was kind of developed together. And 
There are a number of themes that were important for the show and for the book. Um, if you've had a chance to read or see either, you know that it's, it's about innovation and the history of innovation, but it's about a, a, a different kind of model of innovation. So we, you know, we live in this kind of you know, Apple and Google and Silicon Valley and tech startup kind of age where innovation is talked about constantly, but generally the innovations involve gadgets or software apps and so on. And I, I love that world. I've been a part of that world. Um, it, you know, it's, it's exciting and there are great things happening there, but it's not the only kind of innovation that we want to be celebrating. And so in how we got to now, we wanted to go back and look at things like, for instance, the innovation of having clean drinking water delivered, you know, to your kitchen in, in a city of 8 million people that isn't filled with bacteria that will kill you 48 hours later. That was a very complicated technical problem that had to be solved that involved amazing scientific breakthroughs, amazing public health breakthroughs, amazing engineering breakthroughs. And I think as much as we like our you know, iPhones, that if we had to choose between drinking water without cholera in it um, and our iPhones, hopefully we would choose the drinking water, although I know it would be a close call for some of us, um, probably me included. And so we're trying with the show and with the book to kind of celebrate the people behind that, many of whom who did not, many of whom did not become, one, famous, and two, rich, right? A lot of these people were just scientists or public health people trying to improve the world in a small way, and, and they actually have some very dramatic stories behind their work. So that's what the kind of the general thrust of the book is and the general thrust of the show is. But since we're celebrating the book, I wanted to talk about, in, in, in particular, two themes that are really important to the book that we that are kind of implicit in the show, but we didn't really address explicitly in the show. And one of them is this kind of framework that I've been working on for about 10 years now for thinking and writing about history, which I've, I've come to call the long zoom. And the long zoom is basically predicated on the idea that anytime you're trying to understand why something happened in history, why this idea occurred to this person at this moment in time, or why this political revolution happened or why this city took off the way that it did. We can't just tell that story on the scale of individual lives or kind of collective histories of groups of people, which is a conventional way that we talk about history. You have to tell it across different scales of experience. So you have to be able to talk about microbiology and bacteria. You have to be able to talk about climate changes. You have to be able to talk about larger ecosystems. You have to be able to talk about neurons and evolutionary psychology and the way that the brain evolved, as well as questions of individual biographies or social movements and so on. And so you have to be able to jump around a, a bunch of different disciplines to tell the story in a truly accurate way, to really get a sense of what happened and, and why it happened. And the other thing that I talk about a lot in the book is this idea of what I call the, the hummingbird effect, which is what happens when one invention gets into circulation that is trying to solve a particular problem, but it ends up triggering changes in seemingly unrelated fields that had nothing to do with the inventor's original vision. This happens again, again, and again in the history of technology. Someone's trying to solve X, and they successfully solve X, but it opens the door for Y and for Z. And oftentimes Y and Z are not good things. Oftentimes when we, when, when we see kind of technological progress kind of go backwards for a while, it's often because these unintended consequences weren't imagined. They're sometimes called externalities. Um, climate change, for instance, is, is in a sense an unintended consequence of industrialization. We weren't trying to mess up the environment. It just happened that way. So the book tries to take this long zoom perspective in understanding the history of innovation and all these changes and also to really talk about these, these hummingbird effects that, that go off in these un, uh, you know, surprising directions. And one of those, one of, the, one of my favorite stories actually, dates back, um, originates about um, like 10 blocks from here to a, uh, a, a printing shop at, around the turn of the century, about 115 years ago, it, at, um, I think it was Morgan and Grand, um, basically kind of on the edge of Williamsburg. And it was a printing shop that was wrestling with this problem where they were printing high-quality color magazines. And in the summer months, the, particularly the heat, but mainly the humidity, was so severe that they couldn't uh, keep the ink from 
running on the page. So they were getting all these kind of blurry, kind of murky um, color magazine prints. And it was, it was, you know, ruining their business. And so they hired this young engineer whose name was Willis Carrier, who would become the Carrier Corporation, to design a machine that would take the humidity out of the air so that they could have this kind of dry room inside the, the uh, printing press. And so they hired Carrier, and he sets about to try and solve this problem, and he does. And he builds this interesting machine. It's kind of a giant dehumidifier. But, of course, it has this interesting property where you take the humidity out of the air. It also makes the air cooler. And it works. It does its official job, which is that it enables them to print these magazines uh, with perfect fidelity. But they start noticing this interesting little side effect, which is that everybody wants to have lunch in the room with that new contraption because it's really nice and cool and dry in there. And Carrier starts to think, okay, this is interesting. I wonder if there's actually a, a business in this. We could make a machine that is specifically designed to condition the air of interior spaces, and that's the birth of modern air conditioning. And for a long time, air conditioning is something you would only experience in a big institution, in a big office building, or particularly in movie theaters. So until movie theaters started to install air conditioning in the late 20s, the whole idea of the kind of summer blockbuster, the idea of going to a movie theater in the you know, dog days of summer was insane. Nobody would want to do it. It was incredible. You, the last thing you would want to do when it was 95 degrees out is crowd into a room with a thousand other people uh, without any air conditioning. That was exactly the worst thing you could do. But Carrier starts to convince people that maybe they could air conditioning these, these theaters, and all of a sudden this you know, kind of important institution of going to see movies in the middle of the summer to escape the heat becomes part of the culture and eventually leads to the summer blockbuster and all this kind of stuff. Hollywood orients its business around summer films, all that changed, which of course was not part of Carrier's vision initially. But the big change happens in the early 1950s when for the first time uh, home air conditioning becomes possible and they develop a compact unit that can fit in a window, and then they start developing central air for homes. And for the first time, Americans and, and people around the world start to think about air conditioning their homes. And this almost immediately sets off the single largest mass migration of human beings in the history of the, of the United States, where everybody moves from the, the you know, uh, northeast uh, and moves to the south and to the desert southwest and to Southern California, many of which were places where it really wasn't possible to live in an enjoyable way year-round um, without air conditioning. I mean, you know, Vegas had a population of like 97, uh, 97 people uh, 100 years ago. Um, you know, places like Atlanta, places like Dallas, places like Houston triple their population in 10 or 15 years. It's just an incredible exodus of people. And this, of course, ends up transforming the political map of the United States because there's this massive swing in the electoral college that happens as people move from the north to the south. There's something like a 40-vote swing in the electoral college thanks to this migration, which is really, in many ways, I mean, if you have to figure out why that migration happened, air conditioning is at the very top of that list. It is arguably the single most important force in that migration's history. And a 40-vote swing in the Electoral College is, is a big deal. And that migration of people, many of whom are older retirees or more conservative in their political outlooks, that new mass of people living along the Sun Belt becomes the Sun Belt Coalition that elects Ronald Reagan president in, in 1980. Now, it is entirely possible that Ronald Reagan would have been elected president in 1980 had air conditioning not been invented. But what you can say with, with total clarity and accuracy is that had air conditioning not been invented, he would have had to have built a different political coalition because that Sunbelt kind of conservative group did, simply didn't exist before 1965, 1970. And so when you tell the story, you answer the question of why was Ronald Reagan elected in 1980? There are a lot of ways to answer that question, most of which don't involve air conditioning, and that's appropriate. But, you, but they, it is an important part of the story. 
And now, I mean, I think probably in this room, we may assume that that's probably one of those unintended consequences that um, set us backwards a little bit, that maybe we wish air conditioning hadn't been invented. And of course, there are a whole host of other climate-related issues. So if people are moving to the desert where suddenly the temperature is fine, but they don't have the water they need, and that sets off a whole set of chain reactions. But when Willis Carrier is sitting there thinking about air conditioning 10 blocks from here 100 years ago, this was not part of his plan at all. But that is, more often than not, the way that change happens is in society, is that we have these hummingbird effects that trickle out. And the other thing that's really important in all of these, uh, all these chapters and all these episodes um, is the importance of just kind of strange, idle curiosity about the world. Um, this is one of the ways in which I hope that the show in particular is is uh, has proved to be really fun for kids to watch, for kind of families to watch with their kids, because in some ways it's really just this kind of celebration of infectious curiosity. Almost everyone we profile in the show and in the book just has this really interesting, insatiable interest in the world, in things that they stumble across. Oftentimes that curiosity has nothing to do with an actual practical application. They're just interested in it. And it's through that following the kind of strange, unpredictable kind of leads of that curiosity that, that they end up stumbling across really powerful, important, transformative ideas that change the world. But it starts with, I don't know where this is taking me, but I'm just obsessed with this thing and I have to learn more about it. So there's a great uh, character that we also talk about in the, in the cold episode and in the cold chapter of the book next to Willis Carrier. There's a guy named uh, Clarence Birdseye. And you all may recognize the name from the bird's eye frozen peas, right, that you have uh, that are still around there. You still see his, his name. Um, but he's a guy who invented frozen food. Um, until bird's eye came along, all the way through the 19th century, frozen food existed, uh, but it was widely considered to be um, inedible. Uh, it was just horrible tasting. In fact, in the late 19th century, there was a ban on serving frozen food to prison inmates. It was that bad. It was like not good enough for the prisoners. And it just was really not tasty at all, not, not possible to eat. And Birdseye was this interesting guy. He lived, it's this kind of a New York story in the sense that he lived in New York for a bunch of this period where he was coming up with this. But he was a, uh, he was a naturalist and he worked for various um, wildlife uh, organizations, um, national parks organizations and so on. And he traveled around the United States. And it was this funny guy. He, he was obsessed with eating all the animals that he encountered. So whatever he would encounter, his diaries are just filled with all these stories of like, I ate a rattlesnake today. I ate a skunk. Um, and he would keep kind of careful notes on how edible these things were and, and so on. And then at some point around, I think it's 1913 or something like that, he, he moves to Labrador with his family. He's got a young child who's like a year old and his wife, and they moved to Labrador in the winter of 1913, which at that point still is, a, particularly in the winter, a very extreme, one of the most extreme environments on the planet that you could live. And he's up there, and he's just really trying to get food for his family. Um, you know, there's nothing really fresh that you can eat. They're living off of moose jerky, um, which I ate a little of for the show, and it's not a good thing to, to eat. And he, he basically can't, you know, was trying to get healthy food for his family, and so he, he goes ice fishing one day with a local Inuit, and he goes out, and we recreated this in the show. We actually did ice fishing in, in northern Canada, and uh, I was incredibly bad at it. I would be the worst. My family would starve if I had had to supply them with fish from the ice fishing but he goes ice fishing, and it's, you know, 20 below zero. And he catches this fish, and the fish comes out of the lake, and it almost instantly freezes because the air temperature is just so cold. And so he takes his fish back, and, you know, two days later, they thaw it out, and they cook it, and it tastes better than any frozen food they have ever tasted before. Now, most of us at this point would say well, that was a very tasty meal, and now I'm going to go to bed, uh, right? We would just be like, well, I don't know why it was so tasty, but that's what it was. But Birdseye, because he has this really interested kind of mind, he's like, why was it so tasty? What was it about 
that frozen fish that made it so much better than all the others. And so he starts doing, again, purely for his own curiosity's sake, he starts doing a series of experiments where he freezes a bunch of things, fish, vegetables, various other things, at different temperatures. And basically, the lower the temperature, the faster the object freezes. And what he discovers is when you freeze something at a very low temperature, in the speed with which it freezes, it does less molecular damage to the food. And so the food that you're eating when it finally thaws out has been less damaged by the, by the freezing process, um, and thus it tastes much better. And still at this point, he's, he's kind of solved this mystery, but he doesn't really know what to do with that. And so he kind of sits around for a long time and thinks, you know, thinks about it. Years pass. He moves back to New York. He starts inspecting fish um, for the you know, kind of food and health organization in the city. And the idea just kind of lingers in the back of its mind. It's what I call in, an, in another book where good ideas come from uh, a slow hunch. It's just like this hunch that's in the back of his mind. He doesn't know what to do with it. Until finally it begins to think, well, wait a second. I understand how to make frozen foods you know, taste better with this process. Maybe I could build an industrial technology that would actually like freeze things at this high rate of speed at a very low temperature and you know, turn it into a real business. And so he spends a bunch of time, a couple of years, building this flash freezing technology. And he turns it into a company which is briefly called General Seafood and ends up selling it and it becomes the basis of um, uh, General Foods and General Mills. Um, and he makes you know, a couple hundred million dollars in today's money and it becomes a big success. But his plan all along was never to, to, to do this. It was just following this interesting hunch and keeping that hunch alive over long periods of time. And the other thing that's really instructive about Birdseye is that he, he had to move, right? It was something about the different environment, ice fishing in Labrador with an Inuit, triggered a new perception on the world. It was that like shifting from one context to another opened up a door of possibility that he wouldn't have otherwise seen. And he had that kind of tenacity and you know, persistence to keep this idea alive until he was ready to actually do something with it. Now, I know some of you are probably thinking, well, frozen foods, even to this day, aren't that tasty. And now we're all in our kind of foodie culture, celebrated by this fantastic restaurant here. Uh, you know, we're like, well, the guy basically invented frozen TV dinners. That's awful. That's a bad thing. But it turns out the very principle of flash freezing that made the TV frozen dinner possible is also a central technology in a lot of frozen embryos, frozen human embryos, frozen sperm. A lot of the IVF technologies that, that we use today rely on the same principles of flash freezing that bird's eye first discovered sitting there ice fishing with the Inuit. So literally on some basic level, there are millions of people alive today who would not be alive were it not for our mastery of that kind of cold, our ability to control and manipulate cold temperatures, something that no one really knew how to do even 200 years ago. And we certainly didn't understand flash freezing until about 100 years ago. So again, you never really know where that hummingbird effect is going to come from. Something you think is just about feeding your family turns out to be about life and death and, and new kinds of families. I'll tell you one final story uh, that brings together a lot of these different themes. Um, this is part that I, that's not in the book, actually. Part of this is not in the book. Um, I've only actually talked about it once or twice. Um, it's a story really about the, the history of Manhattan. So in the early days of Manhattan, um, there, was a, there was a place called Collect Pond or Freshwater Pond. How many people have heard about Freshwater Pond or Collect Pond? Okay, yeah, just a few. Well, my wife has heard about it. That doesn't count. <laughs> um, 10,000 years ago, when the, when the New York Bay formed, basically, there was a thing called the Narrows that was land connecting Staten Island and, and Brooklyn. And then... As the glaciers were melting, eventually the water built up and carved out a channel through that. And the, what is now New York Harbor kind of flooded with seawater. And now basically, you know, you have salty water all the way up both of the rivers quite a, quite a ways. And this created, this action, you know, 10,000 years ago, created one of the great harbors in the United States and, and set the groundwork for what would become Manhattan and New York City. But it also created a problem for people living on the island of Manhattan, which is that basically while they were had two rivers on either side of them, they, they basically, particularly in lower Manhattan, 
most of that water was salty and you really couldn't drink it. And so one of the key assets that the early settlers on Manhattan, both the Native Americans and then, and then the Dutch, had was there was this large freshwater pond in, in what is now Lower Manhattan, sometimes called Freshwater Pond and sometimes called Collect Pond. And the existence of this pond was really crucial. Without that you know, ample supply of, uh, of fresh water, the early population growth of Manhattan would have been a lot more challenging because they didn't have a lot of other sources of, of fresh drinking water, and they didn't obviously, they weren't going to be able to like pipe it in from upstate at that point. So that, the early days of Manhattan are shaped in many ways by the existence of this pond, not just this amazing harbor, but the fact that this pond was down there. And there are some amazing, if I had a slideshow here, I would show it to you. There's some great um, paintings uh, from the early 1700s of people kind of picnicking by Freshwater Pond. And it's this beautiful pastoral scene. It looks like something from like Dutchess County or something like that. It's really lovely. Um, but because it was in New York, the way New Yorkers are, people started to look at that pond and they started to say things like, that would be a great place to dispose of a body if I were to murder someone <laughs> or maybe I could throw my trash in there or or maybe you know this would be a place where I, my pigs are dead I got to put the carcasses somewhere I'll just toss it into this pond and there was kind of wetlands around the pond so it made it easier for disposing the bodies whether they were human bodies or animal bodies uh, and it became basically this giant trash heap I think I can read this um, no, I can't. I need my glasses. I'm so old. It's so sad. Um, so it, in, uh, by, by 1798, uh, the newspapers were calling it a shocking hole <laughs> um, that collected all the leakings, scrapings, scourings, pissings, and shittings for a great distance around. Uh, and then after that, a, a number of tanneries um, set up shop at the edge of the pond and expelled their wastewater directly into it, which is like, you know, GE setting up one of its plants on the, on the Hudson, which they did later on. Um, and so this place became just hideous, a horrible kind of waste area. And eventually the city uh, decided that they should just fill it in um, because it was, it had gone from being this beautiful bucolic uh, picnic spot to being this cesspool or a stinking hole, whatever they wanted to call it. And, and so they decided to fill it in. Now, I don't know. To me, whenever there's like a lovely body of water and a city decides to, to fill it in, that's a sign that something is going wrong in the city. Like I spent a bunch of time in Providence when I was younger up in Rhode Island, and there was a period in the late 40s, early 50s, where the Providence River used to wind its way through downtown Providence. It was a beautiful little river, and then it just got so polluted that they were like, well, let's just pave it over. Um, and that whenever they pave the river, that's a sign your town is making <laughs> mistakes. And so when they fill in the pond or pave the river, it's time to leave. Uh, fortunately, they, they exposed the river in Providence, and now it's beautiful. Um, so they, they decide to fill in the pond, and they think, we're going to build you know, nice houses here. And they, but they fill it in, and they do kind of a bad job with it. And there's all this organic matter, all those decomposing bodies and all the kind of remnants of the marshland under the fill. And they build a whole neighborhood of really nice houses that are on top of what had been Freshwater Pond. And all the fancy people move into that part of town. And they're like, this is fantastic. It's great. Brand new houses. Um, it's like a little subdivision. Uh, and everybody's excited until, you know, billions of, uh, of invisible bacteria underground start kind of eating away at that decomposing matter. I hope nobody's eating now. Nobody, this isn't a restaurant or anything like that. Um, they start eating away at this, matter buried beneath the ground and unbelievably putrid smells begin to rise up from the land and the houses begin to sink into into the ground and so everybody's like this is the worst neighborhood in the world we have to leave these houses um and so they abandon all these pretty much new houses overnight and so you have this very unusual situation that doesn't often happen in cities where you have a dynamically growing city. This is 1830, 1840. The population of New York is growing at a, at a really amazing clip at this point. And normally what happens is you have overcrowding, but suddenly there's this huge expanse of incredibly cheap housing near downtown that has been opened up by all the rich people leaving in, you know, because it's sinking and smelly. And that neighborhood becomes five points. That becomes the most, most notorious slum 
in the world, really, um, at that point, where you have this new population of the Irish moving from the, the famine in Ireland, and you have um, newly freed or escaped slaves from the north come up and settle there because there's all this housing and it's cheap. It is incredibly smelly and it's sinking into the ground, but it's, but it's cheap. It's a very kind of unusual configuration. And that, of course, sets the tone for the, the great explosion of, uh, of both identity and, and, and population of New York in the 19th century. It becomes the great American immigrant city. And a whole host of kind of identities about kind of the melting pot that is downtown New York come out of that moment in time. And to understand how it came about, you have to you have to know about those, you know, the Irish potato famine, which everybody knows about. But you also have to know about the history of this pond and the history of those microbes uh, creating that that smell and those those buildings sinking into the ground. You can't tell the story on one scale of experience. You have to go from bacteria all the way up to large migrations of, of human beings. By the second half of the 19th century, the conditions in Five Points have become really a national shame. And that you have more people there crowded in, in small amounts of space um, than really anywhere in the world. People had not seen slums like this. There were a few places in London, there were a few places in Paris, but basically this kind of dense crowding in a, in a you know, European or American city just was a new creation. In fact, the phrase slumming it comes from people going and taking tours around the slums of Five Points to experience what was going on in this world. But basically, it was this great national tragedy. And no one was doing anything about it. And in that world, there was a guy most of you have heard of, some of you may have visited his beach, Jacob Rees, who would go on to become one of the great reformers of that period, one of the great muckrakers and kind of champions of the progressive era. And Reese was living on the edges of Five Points, and he was a newspaper reporter. And he kept writing articles and articles about the, the shame of the slums and why, you know, we needed to do something about the conditions of these people. And he basically couldn't get other folks excited about the issue, other than the occasional kind of tourist who wanted to come down and, and check it out. He couldn't get a political movement to deal with this problem. You know, something about describing it in words just wasn't enough because it was such a novel experience. You couldn't see what it was like to have 12 people living in a single room underground without any light and terrible conditions, no drinking water, no running water, you know, a latrine out back, the, the disease, cholera, typhoid, all these things happening. Somehow the description of it wasn't enough. And he actually commissioned kind of line drawings to accompany his work to try and convey visually what these conditions were like. But that didn't work either because everything looked kind of quaint and kind of Dickensian, you know. Um, and so people just couldn't see the horror of it. And so he was very interested in photography. He was very interested in the idea of trying to photograph these conditions. Photo people had been making photographs for 30 or 40 years at this point. And it was, you know, a rising art form. But at that point every photograph required copious amounts of natural light, right? You, and even then you had to have an extremely long exposure, which is why every 19th century portrait is people standing outside being incredibly still, looking really awkward because they have to stand still for 20 seconds for the picture to turn out properly. And so in a very real sense, he was trying to shine light on the conditions of the urban poor in the city, but he didn't have enough light to do it. Every time he tried to photograph at these, these rooms and these spaces were by definition dark and many cases windowless. And so there wasn't anywhere near enough light to get a proper exposure. And then one day he's sitting, reading the paper over breakfast and he hears word about a new kind of technology or kind of scientific breakthrough from Germany, which is called Blitzlick, um, literally kind of flashlight. And it's effectively a tool for what would come to be called flash photography. And so he gets, within a couple of weeks, he gets a hold of this mixture. And it's, it's basically just you're setting off a small explosion. Um, it's just a little tiny controlled explosion that generates very clean kind of white light that you can photograph against um, effectively. But it was dangerous. He actually set fire to his kitchen twice while he was trying to experiment. He burned himself pretty badly. And then he started going into these homes once he got a little bit of a handle on it. And you can imagine what this is like. He goes into these slum dwellings and these, you know, tenement buildings, and 
these are people who have never, in some cases, even heard of photography, much less certainly many of them, most of them would have never been photographed in their life. And somebody pops in and like sets off a small explosion in their house um, trying to take their picture. It was very alarming. But it worked. And he got his photographed. And those images he, he put into a, a book which was ultimately um, published called How the Other Half Lives. And he went around the country doing a magic lantern tour where he gave a speech and showed these images um, as he discussed the condition of the poor in cities like New York. And those magic lantern tours were, were a big deal. They were, you know, this convention of sitting around watching images on a screen in the dark would become, you know, the escapism of Hollywood, in part thanks to air conditioning, uh, in the 20th century. But for many Americans, the first experience they had like that was watching images of extreme poverty. Um, being moved by this man, Jacob Reese, trying to talk about the conditions of people because he was finally able to get these photographs. And though that book and that kind of Magic Lantern tour become one of the primary engines at the beginning of the progressive movement, and it sets in motion a whole series of political reforms that change life in New York in many ways forever and, and inspires reforms all over the world. And what I think is so important about this story is you know, particularly when we, we think about technology and we think about hummingbird effects and we think about the history of innovation, there is often this tendency to assume, in a sense, that the technology is driving us and that we're being driven on this path and society is being changed by all these innovations that really aren't fully under our control. And they're leading, they're following this kind of inexorable logic towards more and more complexity and more and more networks, whatever it is, um, and we're just now kind of being carried along for the ride, and in the sense the machines are kind of starting to dictate the terms. And I think that is partially true, but it's not the entire truth. And when you look back at the story of someone like Jacob Rees, it's very clear that his intervention there made all the difference, right? It was inevitable that someone was going to invent flash photography by the end of the 19th century. That was going to happen. In fact, there were you know, dozens of people working on it. It was absolutely going to happen. That was the kind of inexorable march of technological development. The problem was clear. The need for it is clear. The understanding of how to make controlled explosions was, had reached a kind of critical mass. Um, there was a market for it. All these things had come together to make that technology inevitable. But what was not inevitable was that one of the first uses for that technology would be to take it and shine light on some of the most destitute, impoverished people on the planet and to inaugurate an entire political movement that would improve those people's lives. That was Jacob Reitz. That was not the, the march of technology. And I think that's, to me, the part of it that I think is really important to remember, that yes, it's true, the machines sometimes do seem to dictate the terms, but we do have an amazing human ability to take old tools and put them to new uses or figure out new ways to, to apply these things to solve problems that they were not intended to solve in the first place. And, and the, the choices we make there, those are about human values, about social values, about political values. And so it is not just about the machines telling us what to do, but about us telling the machines that, well, there's this other use here. Maybe we could take this technology and put it to a use that the original inventor never even dreamed of. That is still a vital part of where innovation comes from. And I hope that the show and the book have, you know, in their own little way, tried to encourage more people to think about tech that way. So those are three little New York-themed stories from how we got to now. There's a lot more stories in the book. but there are, The paperback is back there. I just saw it for the first time, uh, and it's lovely. It's, it's got beautiful photographs in it, full color, so it makes a nice gift. And I'll be sitting back there um, drinking and signing if anybody wants to pick up a copy or get it signed. But before we do that, any questions or comments or thoughts um, while we're here together? And I'm going to take that sip of wine that I promised that I would do. Yeah. Hey, Christine. <laughs> so one of my former colleagues uh, just asked. So uh, a bunch, a couple of folks here. Um, we did a cool uh, Brooklyn-based startup called Outside In a couple of years ago, um, which was uh, inspired by, uh, in part by um, uh, my co-founder John Jirachi is right here. I should mention that, and Corey Forsythe is over right there. Um, 
uh, was inspired in part by this book I wrote called The Ghost Map, which was really the first kind of long Zoom book that I, that I wrote, which is about the cholera epidemic in London in the 1850s. And it's a book really about the connections between the cholera bacterium, the streets of the city, this guy, John Snow, the kind of medical detective at the center of it, and the overall superorganism of the city. So it kind of tries to go back and forth between those different scales in telling the story. And it's in many ways about a map, a map of kind of deaths in, uh, from cholera that helps Snow figure out the cause of cholera, that cholera is in the water, not in the air. And at that point, I just re- we just recently moved to Brooklyn, and I was obsessed with how many local bloggers there were in Brooklyn. And Google Maps had just come out with their API. And so suddenly we started to think, well, it would be interesting if you could kind of map all the local bloggers, what they're saying about the latest restaurant that opened or some crime that happened or whatever it was, and you could use the Google Maps API a little bit like the way that Jon Snow built that map of cholera deaths. And so that became Out Sedan, which was a really fun company that eventually became part of AOL. Uh, so Chris Anthony was just asking whether uh, I would ever do another startup inspired by one of my books. Um, and I can answer it even shorter. I'm not going to do another startup <laughs> inspired by another book. It's like a total young man's game. I'm too old to do a startup. Um, I really like advising startups. I have a bunch of startups that I am advising and advising a startup is like being a grandparent. You know, you like, you don't have to change any diapers, but you get all the pride and joy in your offspring. Uh, and you're there for the good moments and the graduations and all that. But when, you know, somebody uh, is up in, at three in the morning uh, vomiting, you're like, well, that's, that's up for the parents to do. I'm just going to go back to my guest room. Um, so, so that's, that's my future. I can't, I wouldn't be able to do a startup again. Thank you. Uh, any, anything else? Any other questions? Where we can casually talk. Yeah. We're bad ideas. Oh, yeah, yeah. Good question, Greg. So, um, yeah, so I wrote this book called Where Good Ideas Come From. And the question was, you know, did I ever think about writing a book called Where Bad Ideas Come From? And, yeah, yeah. In fact, there's a, there's a chapter in Good Ideas um, about error. It's called Error. And it's about how important making mistakes has been to the history of, of good ideas. And it's actually kind of become a little bit of a cliche since I wrote the book. When I wrote it, it was incredibly interesting and provocative. Um, but now there's all this ethos about like, you have to, you know, the Silicon Valley thing of like, you have to fail multiple times. If you don't fail, you, you know, you're not really trying. And, uh, and which is all true and great. And I think it's an important um, value. I actually saw, I saw, I was once doing this conference in like uh, Colombia, actually, in, in um, South America. And, and Steve Wozniak was being interviewed as part of the conference. And they, <laughs> the co-founder of Apple, and they, um, they asked him about this. And they were like, you know, in Silicon Valley, failure is such, it's really valued and it's an important part of the culture. You know, what, what are your thoughts? And, you know, do you agree with that? And he was like, yeah, it's funny. I've never failed at anything that I've done in my whole career. Really, from the beginning, from like school, like grade school on, I've I've always succeeded in everything that I've done, and he was totally serious. It was funny. Uh, I thought I was waiting for him to like break into the laughter, but it was to- dead serious. Um, so, but but the, the actually the book that I am interested in writing that's that's related to that's, that could be called "Where Do Bad Ideas Come From?" and there's a bit of it in Ghost Map, um, which is studying bad ideas that stay around for too long. So in Ghost Map. One of my favorite little sections of that book is just like a 10-page section about the the theory that this guy, Jon Snow, kind of refuted was that the, the reigning theory was that cholera and other diseases like it were in the air and that we were breathing in these noxious particles that were causing us to get sick. Well, we now understand that the main problem is contaminated drinking water, that pollution has its own problems, but you're not getting epidemic diseases through the air for the most part, particularly in, in a crowded city. It's the drinking water that is the issue. And so the miasma theory was the dominant theory for, depending on how you date it, for thousands of years. Um, and it was just dead wrong. And, and there were all these things that people did to co- combat disease based on the miasma theory that were catastrophically um, 
catastrophic in their in their effects. So from one, one of the things is they tried to like get rid of the smells in everybody's basement because people were just dumping their waste down in the basement. And so they had this ordinance to say, we've got to get rid of these smells in people's houses. So you've got to get all your waste and flush it into the river. And the river, of course, was the primary source of drinking water for the entire city. So like a modern-day bioterrorist could not have come up with a better scheme to, 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 to poison the city of London. And that, so my, the question that I wrestled with a little bit in the book was, why did the, there was actually a lot of evidence that suggested that miasma theory was dead wrong. And it lasted way longer than it should have. And so I think there's an interesting, the kind of the sociology of bad ideas, like the sociology of being wrong. Like why, why did this idea stick around for so long uh, when other ideas that were correct were winning out? Um, why was this one so sluggish in being kind of eradicated? Because, you know, we have, we have the now. Look, I mean, I th- it's interesting. It, I, I don't know if I'm being optimistic here, but it feels like Right now, we might be hitting something with guns in this country, right? The, the kind of the statistics about gun deaths in the United States versus every other country in the world seem to be resonating a little bit more finally than the, you know, the arguments that a lot of us have been making for 20 years somehow seem to be finally getting to people. Um, but, you know, certainly it may be just another 20 years of this and it won't happen. But, like, why, why does that stick around for, for so long? Why do, you know, why? Because we tend to study ideas in terms of the triumphs and the success stories. But looking at the bad ideas that take that long, I think, are, are really important as well. Yeah, John. So the, the question is, with all of my writing about innovation and all these things, like how much of I am an, an optimistic about the future versus a pessimist? Um, I mean, you know, you know me. I am temperamentally an optimist, right? I mean, I tend to be, uh, you know, generally pretty excited about things in my own life and the world around me. Um, and I think it's important to remind ourselves how much progress we've made. I mean, one of the points that I tried to make in, in Ghost Map, and it's in, all the way through how we got to now, you know, just, I mean, just look at life expectancy, right? A hundred years ago, it was 49, right? We've almost doubled life expectancy in the United States in the last hundred years. Infant mortality, childhood mortality, these were everyday facts of life a hundred years ago. And we've eliminated, in many cases, these things that were just unbelievably tragic, some of the worst things you imagine, losing a child as a, as a parent um, is incredibly rare while it was incredibly common back then. And it's happening, all that process is happening in the developing world over the last 20 years faster than it happened in the West. Um, they haven't caught up with this yet, but like there's a great story of progress there. Nick Kristoff just had a big column about this two or three days ago. Um, so I think we tend to forget about those things. And we have, you know, for instance, like crime in this country most of you know, is way down, and particularly in New York City, it's way, way down. But every year, Gallup, and it's one of the great, sto- it's a great success story, right? In 1979, 1980, even 1990, when I moved to New York, you know, the crime had just been steadily marching up for 30 years, and it was kind of assumed that that's the way it was going to be forever. And then we saw this incredible reversal, particularly in this city, where we're now, you know, the... 200th most dangerous city per capita in the country, which is amazing. Um, And yet, if you ask, Gallup every year has been asking Americans, is crime getting better or worse over this last 10-year period where crime across the country has been getting much, much, much better in the sense that there's less of it. And every year, Americans say crime is getting worse. It's It's definitely getting worse. So even crime, which has actually got a lot of coverage, people tend not to listen to that. People just tend to focus on kind of negative facts that they hear in the news and the news media feeds that by covering things and only, reco- you know, if it bleeds, it leads and so on. So we get a skewed sense of how things are going. But that said, there are lots of local problems and there are lots of, there's a, a big climate change related global problem. There's a big inequality problem that we have. You know, we do have some macro issues and, you know, we can't, um, we can't ignore those, but I think what I, the way I, when I get pessimistic about things, I tend to kind of use my optimistic historian's point of view to say, well, listen, we solved harder things in the past. We can go 
if we apply ourselves and acknowledge that there is a problem rather than pretending that it doesn't exist, if we rally together and use our brains and innovate and come up with creative solutions to this problem, like we can actually solve it because we, we have a great track record of doing that. So you have to both be pessimistic about some things, but with a, a kind of a long view of progress to inspire you. That's what I try to do. Uh, yes, you on the right. Yeah, you, yeah, yeah. Thank you. First off, um, she said a lot of very nice things about the book, if you didn't hear it. Um, yeah, so the question was about the topic. So, so how we got to now has this structure where there are six chapters, and the show is structured the same way, um, uh, where basically we tried to take everyday objects, things that, we, that are so common we no longer think of them as technology, um, and... Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so a more general question. So with, the, with, with how we got to now, I'll just finish it real quick. The, the, we picked these six objects because each time we wanted to find something that was like ordinary, like we didn't do something on the history of the smartphone because that still feels too high tech. We wanted it like there's a, there's a really fun, the opening chapter is about the history of glass. So just like the, the material glass, which is arguably the most important material of the last thousand years and has changed so many different things. Who, like, how did we figure out how to make transparent glass, which enabled us to make lenses, to make microscopes, to make telescopes, to make film cameras, et cetera, et cetera. In terms of my general process for um, figuring out what to write about book to book, you know, it's, it's very similar to what I was talking about in terms of curiosity and, and bird's eye. Um, so to give you just one example, uh, when I... <laughs> So outside in comes into this actually. So I, I, this book, Where Good Ideas Come From, that I wrote, I was like, I'm going to write a big book about innovation and the history of innovation and how can we learn from the history of these innovators. And I got my publisher, my wonderful publisher, Riverhead, um, to agree to publish it, and they bought the advance. And I mean, they bought the proposal and all that. They gave me a nice advance, and and then I got sidetracked by. This guy and, and these, this guy to, to start outside in. And I, so I went back and said, hey, guys, I'm going to start this company. So I'm going to take like a year off and, and do this company for a year. And I'd written three books in three years. So I was like, people are going to get sick of me if I write another book. So I'm going to take a year off. And then like that became a year and a half or whatever. And so they called me and they said, hey, Stephen, uh, you remember that book we bought uh, that you were going to write for us about innovation? And so I was like, okay, I got to start researching it. And so I went and I, I knew that I wanted to have this kind of ecosystem metaphor about the kind of ecosystems that create new ideas. What are they? And so I thought, well, it'd be interesting if I go back and I research the history of the idea of ecosystems in the first place. Who came up with that idea? Where did that science come from? And so that led me back to this interesting 18th century chemist named Joseph Priestley, who was famous for identifying oxygen for the first time, even though he didn't actually do it. But he also was the first person to realize that plants were creating oxygen and that the whole reason we have a breathable atmosphere is because the plants are creating it, which is a central tenet of modern ecosystem science, right? So it's like, oh, okay, I'll start this book with a story about this Joseph Priestley character because he sounds interesting. So I got to learn more about him. So I start reading about him. Turns out he's this crazy guy who was best, well, he's British. He was best friends with the founding fathers, had a huge, co-founded the Unitarian religion in church in, in England, became the most hated man in England, was driven out of England by a ang literally an angry mob carrying torches, emigrated to America, was the first great exile intellectual in America, was single-handedly, was the single most important person in keeping Thomas Jefferson uh, nominally a Christian, and was best friends with Ben Franklin. And so I was like, oh my God, this guy is amazing. I got to write a whole book about this guy. And so I went up, I remember going up to tell my wife one night, I was like, forget the good ideas book. I'm going to write a book about this guy, Joseph Priestley, who was best friends with the founding fathers. And she's like, what is going on down there? And so then I had to have this awkward conversation with my publisher where I was like, I know I'm under contract for a big book about innovation, but I think a book about 18th century chemistry is what the world really <laughs> would like to read. Um, and for some reason, they let me do it. I don't know why that is. And so then I wrote both. That became a book called The Invention of Air, and then, and then I wrote Good Ideas. 
But that, that's, you know, that's how it works. And, you know, God bless the Internet. The Internet makes that kind of stuff so much faster. You know, you can, and for all the sentimental stories about, I mean, this is one place where I am really optimistic. In terms of research, this is the golden age. Anyone who has ever told you, like, but you walk down the library when you go into the stacks of the library and you stumble across something you weren't expecting to look for, that is total crap. That, I mean, how many times have you actually noticed the binding of a book in the library and you're like, that, that shade of purple looks kind of interesting. I'm going to pull that one down and look for something. The internet, Wikipedia even, um, you know, Google Books, Google Scholar, your ability to just be like, I'd like to know what the deal is with this Joseph Priestley guy. And in five minutes, you're downloading the original reproduction of an obscure pamphlet he wrote in, you know, 1784 that you can get because Google has scanned all these documents in searchable PDF form. It's an, it's an amazing time to do the kind of work that I do. And some of these books would have taken literally twice, three times as long to research. Because following those trails is so much easier. I'm sorry. I could answer this question for the rest of the night. So let me just skip. Did you? Someone over there? No? Okay. The person who had the question left. <laughs> no, you did? Okay, yeah. With the rise of? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know, it's really okay. So the question is whether the emergence of kind of niche culture threatens innovation because people aren't thinking outside of their comfort zone or their silo or whatever it is. And there are two sides of it. On the one hand, all these technologies enable us to find like-minded individuals who share some weird, obscure obsession. And so you can be like, you know, the goth knitting circle. It used to be really hard to find other goth knitters. But now the internet, there's like a meetup with 55 of them, you know, in your city because you can find all these people. And so it allows you to form these little clusters. And sometimes people see that as being like, okay, well, that means we're all just flocking together in these little groups. And we're becoming, this is what's sometimes called the echo chamber theory. Like we're only hanging around with people who are more like us. And we're not hearing people who have different interests and political tolerance and innovation comes from the clash of ideas between you know people who have different perspectives in the world and and who have different fields of expertise you know the the cross-disciplinary engine of innovation is a really important part of the story and so if we're all becoming these little echo chamber niches we're not going to have those encounters the way i tend to look at it is uh, yes that is some part of the story, but the, the internet and the web in particular are so intensely connective. And, and my experience of the internet, at least, is, is the exact opposite. The problem is the internet is constantly taking me to places that I wasn't planning on going, and I'm constantly being distracted by stumbling across different worlds and different ideas, and not, I'm not able to focus enough. And the idea that there is too much kind of like-minded echo chamber kind of groupthink on the internet, like, has anybody, like, ever hung out in an online discussion? Like, a ch- any kind of, like, comment thread? Like, I mean, on some level, you have to believe that the problem with the internet is there's not enough arguing on the internet. Like, that is, that's bizarre. Like, the internet is actually too intense and arguing and, and combative in a way, and, uh, you know. And there was a big study done a few years ago where they tried to measure this across different forms of media and into real life. And they created this unit that's called the isolation index, which is basically how isolated are you from different points of view, points of view that differ from your own, particularly politically. When you're watching television, when you're watching cable news, when you're browsing news websites, or when you're at your job or at your church or at your community center or whatever it is. And they, they basically did this huge study where they looked at all these different forms. And what they found was In terms of media, there really isn't that much difference. The web is actually slightly more isolating than um, TV, slightly less isolating than newspapers. They're all kind of clustered around in the same place. But the really isolating environments are real-world environments. The place where you're only going to hear people who are just like you are, are when you go to your church or when you go to your club or when you're hanging out with your friends or when you're hanging out in your cul-de-sac in your suburbs and so on. Those real-world environments tend to be much more politically and kind of intellectually homogeneous than media environments. And that 
it was a really interesting finding because there's a whole kind of bowling alone argument about we need to get out and form these groups and kind of challenge ourselves and extend it. It turns out if you're trying to challenge yourself with different points of view, actually, media is is the best tool we have going right now. Now, we could make those real-world environments more challenging and, you know, big, diverse, interesting cities like, you know, New York City or Brooklyn offer a lot more diversity than a lot of other places do in the rest of the country. But actually, the media turns out to be less isolating than we than I think a lot of us thought. All right, if there's one more question, maybe we do one more question. Otherwise, we can just adjourn. All right. Thanks, everyone. That was really fun. Thanks for coming out. Thanks, everyone, for coming. Uh, Stephen will be signing books in the back. And um, be on the lookout. There will be more Think and Drinks hopefully soon. And uh, just contact me on the website if you want to know anything or contribute. We'd appreciate it. Thanks so much. Appreciate it.